To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, flee the evil desires of youth, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. In any given week, uh, when I'm looking at my email inbox, uh, there are tons of articles that get sent to me. Some of them I subscribe to, some of them people send to me, and I wish I had time to read all of them. Uh, But there was one that came recently that I just read the title and it grabbed me. This was the title. Three things Christians do that non-Christians despise. Despise, yikes. What are those things? Maybe just in your mind right now, what do you think? I don't want you to say anything out loud, but what do you think might be on their list? The first couple of things that I read did not shock me at all. The first one is they hate Christians. They despise Christians that are judgmental. They hate the way that Christians can tend to look down on other people, tend to point fingers at other people about what they believe, how they behave. They don't like people that are judgmental. Second thing that was on the list, and this one stung just a little bit, hypocritical. They don't like people. They despise Christians that are hypocritical. And this is why this one stung a little bit, because I mean, if I'm honest with you and with everybody, I'm a hypocrite as well, because I know, I know what it is that Jesus calls me to be and to live like. Do I live like that all the time? Does my life even match up to all the things every day that I teach from up front? And if I were honest, I would say, not always. So that one stung a little bit, because when I stand up here and give a sermon, and I mean this, these sermons are as much for me. I need these. These are truths that I need to apply. The third one I thought was interesting. They don't like Christians that are bad at friendship. And this is how they kind of described that in this article. Christians can tend to kind of isolate and congregate with people that think like they think and behave like they behave. They never really engage in meaningful relationships sometimes with people outside of the faith. And so people outside of the faith looking at them, they can see them just kind of peripherally or observationally and not in depth relationally. They hate Christians that are bad at friendship. I was kind of looking at it like that's really bad PR for Christians, isn't it? But here's what's true is that this isn't brand new. These aren't the first people saying these things. In fact, Mahatma Gandhi, he had this to say very famously, but also very sadly. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike 
your Christ. What do we do with this? I mean, are, are, are we just misunderstood? Or are we just being treated completely unfairly? Or do we need to actually hold the mirror up to our life and look inside our life and our heart and ask some difficult questions? Because I've got to tell you, friends, it was not always this way. When you read history in the first 300 years of the church, the reputation of the church was the exact opposite of this. Those people that were from the very beginning followers of Jesus, they were known for their love for people. They were known for their sacrifice and service to other people, and not just their own people, even their enemies. It's so interesting to listen to some of the Roman emperors that would write about Christians, and they just couldn't believe that they would do more for the Roman poor than the Roman government would do. Their reputation was stellar, and they had no money. They had no reputation. They had no political influence whatsoever, but they turned the world upside down. They turned the Roman government upside down in a matter of about 300 years because of how they lived their lives. What did they know? I believe they knew how to fight the good fight. And that's what Paul has been saying all throughout this book of 2 Timothy. He's trying to help us understand what he did because he said at the very end of this book, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And when we've been talking about this idea of fighting the good fight, finishing the race, keeping the faith, sometimes we've been talking a little bit about what does it look like? What are the things that we need to do to keep our faith intact until we get to the end of our life, just like Paul was here? But there's more to it than that. It's not just about us trying to figure out how to hold on to our faith. It's about us being a part of what God is doing in the world and imparting that faith imparting that message, the good news, the gospel of Jesus to a world that also needs to get into the fight with us through a relationship with Jesus. That's what Paul's gonna talk to us about in the last half of 2 Timothy chapter two. He's gonna talk to us about how do we fight and what is it that we fight? This is how he starts out. He says the first thing that we need to fight for is we need to fight for the truth. But this is how he talks about that. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Keep reminding God's people of these things. He says, warn them. Warn them before God. I mean, he is serious. Warn them before God against what? Quarreling about words. Quarreling. It is of no value, and it only ruins those who listen. Literally, the language says, Quarreling about words is no word fights. That's what's saying. When we use our words, whether we use our words in email, whether we use our words on social media, maybe it's face-to-face -face with people. Maybe it's from the pulpit. He says, don't use word fights. He says it doesn't do any good and it actually damages the message of Christ. It ruins those who listen is what he says. But at the same time, he says, don't quarrel, but he elevates the truth. 
We need to understand and stand for the truth of God's word. And here's how he goes on to describe that. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker. They work at it, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, but who what? Listen to this, correctly handles the word of truth. Correctly handles the word of truth. He says, avoid godless chatter because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. Paul says, this is what we work at. We work at correctly handling. The word that that comes from has the root word of ortho, where we get words like orthodontics, like making teeth straight, where we get words like orthodoxy, having straight teaching. What he's saying is, Timothy, be in this book. Get it straight. Get it straight in your heart and life and give it straight to the world. Don't deviate from it, Timothy. Don't dilute it in any way. Shoot straight, Timothy. Correctly handle the word of truth. And Paul's saying we need to be a workman. We need to work at that. And don't be quarreling about it. But it's interesting to think about. A lot of people spend a lot of time in this book trying to understand what it means and how to apply it. And they actually come to different conclusions. Did you know that? Some people think differently about this. And how are we to deal with that? How are we to understand that? Here's what I thought was going to be true in my own life as a young follower of Jesus. And then I got my undergraduate degree. And when I started working on my master's degree in biblical studies and theology, I just thought I'm going to get all my questions answered. And I'm going to know everything that is right and wrong, black and white. And I'm going to be able to answer everyone. I still have questions about some of the things in this book, and I bet that maybe so do you. How do we deal with that? What is it that Paul would want us to do? And I want to share with you something that when I was in seminary, because it was challenging to try to figure out what do you grab a hold of, and what are the things that are essential? Maybe what are things that are non-essential? One of the things that my favorite professor shared with me actually shared it with the whole class, not just me. But he said there's a central group of beliefs that we have in and around our faith that he says that we need to be willing to die for. Maybe not literally die, but these are the things that we pound the table for. And he used a word to describe those. He called them convictions. We have conviction level essentials. Things that are true. And if we start to get outside of these essentials, it's no longer the historical and biblical Christian faith. What am I talking about when I talk about the things that we need to die for as it relates to the truth? I'm talking about the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. That we believe that this book came from God. God breathed. And it is authoritative in our life, in everything that it teaches about Whatever it says, we say yes to it. It has authority in our lives. Things like the Trinity, 
that God exists eternally in three distinct persons, but one essence. We believe that that's what the Bible teaches about who God is, that there was an incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus came as the God-man, fully God, fully man, eternally that way. But we're also talking about his virgin birth, his sinless life, his substitutionary atonement, big word, but simply means Jesus died in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. He was our substitute and he atoned for our sin. A bodily resurrection. He rose from the dead. What we celebrate on Easter, we don't think that that's just a good story. We believe that that actually happened. Jesus rose bodily from the grave. And there's gonna be a personal return of Jesus to this earth. That our justification, another big word, but it just means that 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 makes us right with God. We come into a right relationship with God. Our justification is by grace alone, through faith alone, And the result of that is that we have gospel-centered works. We get involved in the work of the kingdom and our lives get changed from the inside out. We believe that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, indwells the life of every true believer in Jesus. And that is the mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All people that are indwelt by the Holy Spirit make up the big capital C church, all of God's people. And we believe that there's a final judgment, that there will be a final judgment that ends up with every person that's ever lived either spending eternity with God or eternity separated from God. These and maybe a couple other things are what we would call the essentials of the faith. These are the things that we would die for. You start stepping outside of these basic, fundamental, essential truths, and you're not following biblical and historical Christianity. But what about other issues that maybe are not as essential? My professor described a different category. Not things that we would die for, but things that we would divide for. Now, every person that's in this category is a faithful follower of Jesus, but there are some things that we have beliefs about in terms of how we live out and practice our faith that we believe that it's helpful that maybe that we would separate or have different spiritual families based on how we think about certain beliefs in our faith. Let me just give you an example, not to give you an exhaustive list, but give you an example of how this works. Let's talk about baptism. Let's talk about baptism for a second. Some people believe that baptism is the sign and the seal of membership into a covenant community. And so therefore, it's very appropriate and reasonable to baptize babies, infants, children of believing parents because they're a part of this covenant community. But there's other people that believe that baptism is a sign of personal confession of Jesus. Like he is my Lord, he is my King, he is my Savior. And that baptism is for people that have made that confession of faith, also known as people that are believers. We here at Journey, and this is probably not a surprise to you, we ascribe to the latter. We believe that baptism is something that we do as a result of our, our expressing 
faith in Jesus, putting our faith in him. And you know, if you've been around Journey, we make a big deal about baptism. We celebrate it in very public and powerful ways. We want to hear those stories of confession of faith. And we do that together as a family. We don't baptize infants. You've probably seen that we've never had a little baby up there in the tub, but we dedicate babies and small children to the Lord. We think that is important to do for believing parents. Now you can be on either side of this and be a faithful follower of Jesus, but because it's so important to us in terms of how we express our faith, that this is something that we would probably divide for. This is how we're going to do it here, but there can be another church that does it differently than us that also is made up of faithful followers of Jesus. In fact, it's interesting for me to think about if there was one pastor that I think has probably been the most influential in my life in terms of sermons that I've listened to and books that I've read, it would be Tim Keller. You probably hear me quote Tim Keller a decent amount around here. Now, Tim Keller has more smarts and godliness in his little finger than I have in my whole body. I respect him so much, but I am persuaded in a different way about baptism. We would probably choose different ways to worship around that. So when we talk about divide, these are issues of persuasion. We're persuaded in a certain way, a conviction or a persuasion. But there's a third level that we would call things that we would decide for. And when we talk about decide for, we're talking about simple opinion. I have an opinion about this. And this might even be things that are related to things that we do in and around church that have nothing to do with what the Bible speaks necessarily whatsoever. It could be worship style. There are churches that sing out hymns and there are churches that sing worship choruses. That there are churches that will only preach verse by verse every week but there's other churches that actually teach topically sometimes. Obviously, that is us. We do verse by verse. Sometimes we do topically sometimes. But these are not things that we would divide over. These are things that we would just simply have opinions about. But here's the challenge, friends. The challenge is when we take things that are at the decide level and we make them all to die for things that are just opinion level. And these are the things that we're gonna pound the table about. And I believe that's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about to Timothy. He's like, don't be argumentative. Don't be argumentative or, or harassing one another in argumentative ways about things that are not essential. He's saying, keep the main thing the main thing. Be evangelistic about the gospel of Jesus, not evangelistic about things that you have opinions about. It was interesting as I was preparing this, I was thinking about an interaction that I had not that long ago. Um, I'm kind of a creature of habit and I have different places around town where I work on my sermons. They're usually the same time every week at, um, on different days. And there's this one place that I go downtown and there's a guy that frequents that place downtown. He's not a, uh, he doesn't attend our church. He attends uh, another church uh, in our town. Um, but I, love, I just love this guy. I love my interactions with him. He knows that I'm a pastor. He knows um, that I teach 
the Bible. And, and just so you know, this guy is very much on your side. One of the things that he says to me every week when I'm working on my sermon is make it shorter. <laughs> he doesn't even know how long my sermon is, but he just walks by me and just says, make it shorter and keeps going inside. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. But there was one day not long ago that he was leaving and he turned around and he pointed at me in a way that he never really does. And he says, you need to preach the truth. And I was like, amen, I'm all about that. And I said, the truth about what? And he said, you need to preach the truth about vaccines. Okay, okay, this is, this is instantly where I went. Like in my mind, I'm just thinking, what side of the fence is this guy on? Because I haven't preached about vaccines, but I've been preached at about vaccines. I will say that, but I'm just thinking, what side of the fence is this guy even on, but I, I just ask him, like, what do you think the truth about vaccines are? And he shared with me his opinion. I don't think it's worthy for me to stand up here and preach about my truth about vaccines. That is out in the area of opinion. But where we run into trouble, friends, is when we take those things that are out there, they're even completely outside the biblical authority, and we make those the issues that we're gonna die for. Paul is saying to Timothy, make the main thing the main thing. Give your life for the central issues of the gospel. Don't give your life to quarreling about words because that's not the good fight, Timothy. He's saying that that actually, that quarreling, that argumentative spirit is actually destructive. When people look in, to what you're doing, Timothy, with your church and into the world, when they see that kind of quarreling, they're just like, I'm out. Timothy, don't do that. That is not the good fight. But as Paul continues what he's sharing with young Timothy here, at first he talks about we need to fight for the truth, but not just fight for the truth out there in the world. He says, you gotta fight for the truth in your own heart, and in your own life. And he's gonna tell young Timothy, you need to fight against sin. The application of truth to your life. Here's how he says it, starting in verse 19. He says, nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his, and a second one, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. There's two things that are foundational. The Lord knows those that are his. I love how Jesus said it. He said, my sheep, they know me and I know them. And they hear my voice and what do they do? They follow me. They obey me. They come after me. And secondly, Significant truth, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord, meaning everyone that belongs to him truly, must turn away from wickedness. That's what characterizes a follower of Jesus, that we actually deal with sin in our life. It's the mark of the true church. The true church are those people that when they see sin in their life, they reject it, they hate it. Now, this doesn't mean that people that are a part of the true church, a true follower of Jesus are sinless. We know this, we say this all the time. We have all 
sinned. We're all incredibly flawless. I'm incredibly broken. But what Paul makes really, really clear is that those that are truly following Jesus hate their sin. And they want to be partnering with God and allowing him to do the work in their life to remove themselves from sin and from wickedness. There's a life of obedience that follows a genuine follower of Jesus. We don't make peace with sin in our life. We want in every way to reject it. And it's not about, it's not about perfection. It's not about getting everything right, but it is about progression. That the Holy Spirit would bring us to places of conviction of our sin. And when we see it in us, and that conviction would lead to repentance, that we would turn from that and turn back to God and his grace and reject that and allow ourselves to be transformed from the inside out. And Paul says there's reason for that. Here's how he describes it as he continues to go forward. He says, in a large house, there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. What Paul's saying is that in a house, in any large house, there's different kinds of vessels, different kinds of containers. And I just grabbed a couple of containers that we had here around Journey. Now, this container has a special use. And it's not gold or silver, but you know what this is for, for cooking and for serving. And if you were at a meal here at Journey and we were ladling out of this, you probably wouldn't think twice about it because this is something used for a special purpose. I found another vessel here at Journey. What would it be like for you if you showed up here for a potluck? We're not necessarily a potluck kind of a church, but if you showed up for a potluck and I was serving out of this, you'd be like, I don't know. I'm probably just going to get some bread. I'll pass on the soup. Why? This is for common use. What Paul is talking about here was things that are used for waste, even human waste. He says that's not useful for noble purposes. It needs to be clean. And man, we would really want to clean that before we served anything out of it. But do you see the picture that Paul is using here? If we're going to fight the good fight, if we're going to be useful to the master, there's got to be ongoing cleansing that is happening in our life. Cleansing from sin, cleansing from wickedness, cleansing from those things that are going on in our life, even if nobody else knows about them. Things that are happening that we know runs counter to the will and the word of God. We want to be cleansed from those things. But here's what's challenging in the context of a church. We're all mixed bag of those two kind of containers, aren't we? We all got stuff. We all have sin that we're working on. 
And that's why when people look into the church, they say, it's full of hypocrites. You know what I say? Absolutely. 100%. It should be that way. Because where is it that we come to be cleansed? It's in the context of a spiritual family where we do that together and allow God to do that. We are always going to be accused of being hypocrites. But a difference would be, could be, and should be that we're not dishonest about what's happening in our life. We know that we're broken. We're not trying to hide our brokenness from other people. And we're inviting them in to be a part so that they can find help and healing for their brokenness as well. This group this is never intended to be a museum for saints. This is always meant to be a hospital for the broken and sinners, me first and foremost. I want God to change my life from the inside out with you. We do that together. I just got to ask it, where, where do you need to be cleansed? Jesus knows who's his. He knows everything that's happening in your heart and your life. Where do you need to be cleansed? I'm not asking if you need to be cleansed because I know the answer to that is yes. The only question is where? What does God want to do? Where is he bringing conviction in your life? Asking you to move toward repentance. Turn away from it. Turn away from that. Turn back to me. Let me change you from the inside out. What is God speaking to you about that? Where do you need to be cleansed? The last thing that Paul talks about in this section that we need to fight against is that we need to fight against fights. And he comes back to it, that whole idea of quarrels and arguments. Not only does he come back to it, he doubles down. This is what he says, verse 22. Flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because you know that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be, listen, kind to everyone, able to teach not resentful. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. He starts out by saying, flee the evil desires of you, sometimes translated youthful lusts. I feel like as a young man, this was always taught to me that this is about sexual sin, sexual lust, which absolutely we need to flee from that. But that's not what Timothy or Paul is talking about to Timothy right here. He's talking about this quarrelsome arguing. And he's saying that if you like to quarrel, if you like to argue, if you have to be right, grow up. That's what little kids do. That's what youth do. Be mature. Be strong in your faith. Dang, this is convicting to me. As I just held up my life, just try to honestly before, I had to just say, God, I like to quarrel. 
I like to be right. But I try to do it in a respectable way most of the time. I'm not the kind of personality that is going to be yelling at people, poking my finger in their chest. But I like to argue with people. You know how good I am at it? They don't even have to be in the room and I can argue with them. All they have to be is in my head. And I am always right. And my arguments are so great every time. And they're always so wrong, so apologetic. I always win. I don't know what happens in my physical body when I'm doing this, but I know that something must be happening because every once in a while, my wife will look at me and she'll say, now who are you talking to? (laughs) Oh, no, you didn't. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm quarreling. And he just lets me know, even if I can hide it from up here, even if I can hide it from people, I've got a heart that wants to quarrel. God wants to deal with that in me. But I've got to ask you, where are you at with that? How do you talk to people that maybe believe differently than you, that maybe behave differently than you? Let me take it a step further. How do you talk about people that believe differently than you or behave differently than you? If they're not in the room, how do you talk about them? Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's a class or a group of people. How do you talk about them? Because whatever comes out of your mouth is an overflow of your heart. If you were to describe the way you talk about your opponents in this life or what you consider to be the opponents of the truth, would you be able to use the adjectives that Paul uses and commands? Is it kind to everyone? Is it not resentful? Is it gentle instruction? Is it respectful? Why is this so important? Why is this so important to Paul? Not only that we not argue, but even how we defend the truth, how we stand for the truth. I wanna read verse 26 to you again because this is so instructive. He says, this is the hope that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is what Paul wants Timothy to understand. Timothy, those opponents, those people that you think are your enemy, they're not the enemy of the truth. The enemy of the truth is the enemy of your soul, the devil himself. People that you think are the enemy of the truth, they're the audience for the truth. And you've got to talk to them in ways that are kind, not resentful, gentle, and respectful. And that's why Paul, writing to this church that Timothy is leading, this church in Ephesus, in the book of Ephesians, says it this way. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That's the good fight. That's the fight that Paul wants us to engage in, not with each other, not with the world, with the enemy himself. Let me tell you this. If you're trying to figure out who the enemy in your life is, if you can see them with your eyeballs, they're not the enemy. What Paul is saying here 
is that it's not against flesh and blood. He says, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against what? The rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. This is what makes this so challenging. It's easy to think that the enemy is the person that you can see. Our real enemy is powerful, not more powerful than God, not even close, but we can't even see him. But that is our true enemy. That's how we've got to think when we engage with the world around us. And now I know sometimes people think, people don't want to hear what I have to say about the gospel. I don't believe that that's true, and I've got some statistics, a study that Barna did that I just thought was fascinating that I read this, that I read this week. It says that more than six in 10 non-Christians 62% say that they would be open to talking about faith matters with someone, now get this, who listens without judgment. The number one thing that they value, someone that will actually listen to them without judgment. And here's the heartbreaking thing. 62% are open, but only 34% said that they know a Christian like that. It's not good enough. It's not good enough. In this study, there were several things that non-Christians said are important to them in having a faith conversation. I want to read some of those to you. The first one I just read to you is listens without judgment. The second one, does not force a conclusion. And third, allows others to draw their own conclusions. Not trying to make somebody believe something. Number four, I love this one the most. They want someone who is confident in sharing their own perspective. They just want us to be confident, clear about what it is that we believe. They want someone that's confident. But then there's some interpersonal things that they value. Demonstrates interest in the other person's story or life. Good at asking questions. They just want to know, do you care about my life and my story or you just want to pound me with truth and argue and quarrel? One of the last things, I love this one. This is what they want from people that would share their faith with them. Exhibits a vibrant faith of their own. They just want to know, do you really live this out? Does this really change your life? Because if it ain't working for you, don't talk to me about it. And lastly, aware of the inconsistencies in their own perspective. That we would be willing to just be honest that, you know, maybe we don't have all the answers. I read that list, and with an open heart, I just said, I think that's fair. I think that's absolutely fair. And honestly, I think that's what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell Timothy to do. Because I think if you boil down what people want in a faith conversation, it's that they want someone to be kind, they want them to be gentle, and to listen, they want to be understood, and they want to hear it from someone who is confident in what they believe and vibrant in the living out of their faith. Paul's telling Timothy, don't win arguments. Win people. Don't win arguments. Win the souls of people. That's what's at stake. 
And how we go about it matters. It absolutely matters. It mattered to Paul and it matters to God and it needs to matter to us. I'll close with this quote from one of the commentaries I read. It just kind of broke my heart, but I feel like it was a challenge that we needed to hear. When people on the streets are asked, what is a Christian? What do they stand for? On nearly every occasion, words come back such as anti-abortion, anti-gay, anti-feminist, anti-welfare, anti-this, anti-that. And words like harsh, self-righteous, intolerant, and mean-spirited. Yet another poll of people asked what they think Jesus was like. Almost universally, people return with words like compassionate, nonviolent, peacemaker, and reconciler. How do we explain the contradictions here? Either the popular conception of Jesus is mistaken, or we and the church are following the wrong agenda. Church, we gotta get better. We've gotta get better for the sake of the world coming to know the Jesus that we love. So that they can bow their knee to him, give their life to him. Follow him with everything that they've got. We've got to do better. And that's what Paul is saying is the good fight. That's the good fight. We need to contend for the truth. But we can't be contentious. We've got to defend the truth. But we can't be defensive. That's the good fight. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be useful to you. We want the world to know you. We want our lives to be changed so that the world can see what it looks like when you're at work in our life. Jesus, we need you to fight the right fight, to die on the right hills for the things that matter the most. Would you teach us how to fight for the truth? How to fight against sin in our life so that even how we live in the world is an expression of your holiness and your goodness and your righteousness. And please, Jesus, would you help us to change our hearts in a way that we're willing to fight against fights that we just wouldn't do it. No more arguing, no more quarreling. Would you convict us of how much that destroys the faith of others. But Jesus, I just want to say thank you so much that you invite us into the fight with you for the sake of not only us as a spiritual family, but for the sake of the world that needs to know you. Thank you that you allow us to be a part of that with you. We are so grateful. We are so honored, and we want to do it well. And it's in your great and powerful name that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's stand up and let's worship and let's give great thanks to Jesus for all that he's done for us. Thanks for engaging with this content. If it was encouraging to you, we'd love for you to leave a review. 
hit that subscribe button and share this content with others. We'd also love to connect with you. The best place to do that is journeyweb.net. Don't forget to follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search Journey Church Bozeman and you'll find us there. If you'd like to give to our ministry, you can do that now at journeyweb.net slash give. Once again, thanks for engaging with Journey Church.